Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Kari Brown. Kari is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Spark the Journey. He joined Spark the Journey in 2001 as the organization's Executive Director and then became CEO in 2015. At the time he joined, he was Spark the Journey's only employee and has since then built the organization from a niche program that reached only 50 students per year to an organization that is currently supporting more than 500 students and has grown by 400% since 2012. I love the conversation with Curry because he has purpose running through his veins. He wants to make a difference and he is making a difference in so many people's lives through his efforts in the community. Curry's favorite quote is, education is the passport to the future for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. Malcolm X. And Kari is helping many young people in our community prepare for that tomorrow. I'm sure you will also enjoy the conversation. Learn from Kari and be inspired by him as well. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavikoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast. And when you get a chance, leave a rating and review on your favorite app that will help more people find the conversations and benefit from them. Now, here's my conversation with Kari Brown. Kari Brown, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thanks so much, Mahan. It's great to be with you. Curry, I've seen your leadership and your impact in the community. I've gotten a chance to see your energy, your enthusiasm for the work you do. And even the interactions we have had have been energizing for me. So I know they will be energizing for everyone who gets a chance to listen to some of your life story and background. Would love to start out, Curry, first with whereabouts you grew up and trying to understand the impact of your upbringing on you. Great. I was born in the Boston area, actually born in Boston and grew up in the Boston area in the early 70s. And I'm an only child to a black father and white mother who were the best parents, that are the best parents, still married, I think, 53 years of marriage or something. Awesome. I grew up in the Boston suburbs, attended public schools, and I come from a family of uh, educators, and I think that helped to shape some of my values and what I thought I might do as an adult. But I had a wonderful childhood and very grateful for all the opportunities that I had getting the start that I did. Korea, as society is becoming more diverse and we're becoming more comfortable dealing with people with different backgrounds. I imagine growing up in the 1970s with a black father and a white mother was more unusual than it would be 
today. What was that experience like for you? Mahan, at the time, I didn't have anything to compare it to. My awareness of race and difference, my own difference, began when I was about five or six. I'd be out with my dad and recognize that the reactions that we got, the looks, the comments, I could tell there were exchanges with people that upset my dad that I didn't really understand. And I think that started to happen around six. There were definite times, and this coupled with being an only child, where I felt isolated, alone, or that I didn't really have a group. And I developed skills where I could go in between everyone's group and yet never be fully a member of anyone's group, if that makes sense. That had some benefits, too, and it's given me a worldview that I really appreciate now. But definitely some hard moments. Boston, there's a lot of racism still today, but particularly in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. So again, I go back to what I said at the beginning. It was a wonderful childhood overall. As you were going to school, what drew you to basketball and why did you get so excited and so involved with it? I loved all sports as a kid. Basketball was my favorite. I'm tall. So I was always one of the taller kids. I'm 6'5 now. And so that helped, right? <laughs> Gave me an advantage there. But I just loved the game. I loved to compete. I loved the team aspect of it. It was just the cultural aspect of it, too. I just loved everything about the game. And it gave me great mentors, experiences, and growth opportunities. My first leadership opportunities came through basketball, being a captain. And I would never be doing the things that I'm doing today had I not had some of those opportunities through basketball. So it was terrific. So it must have been devastating for you to be cut from your <laughs> basketball team in ninth grade, Gary. <laughs> How did you know that? Yeah, that was devastating. It was devastating. I cried. I was crushed. But I had a moment where I said, is this going to be it? Am I going to give up? Am I going to quit? And I dreamed playing the NBA like lots of naive kids. And I could have to <laughs> figure something else out. <laughs> and I decided, no, I'm going to work at it. I'm going to you know, prove them that they're wrong. And I had an opportunity to, later in that season to get put back on the team and gradually worked my way from the bench to becoming one of the best players. Over time and with a lot of hard work and hitting a growth spurt also helped. <laughs> <laughs> that helps, but it's interesting because a lot of times setbacks in life make some people resentful, other people better as a result of the setback. They work even harder. Yeah, I wasn't going to let that stop me. And what I gained from that experience was but at other times in my life as well, I'm going to try something else. I think sports helps to teach you that you get knocked down a lot. And once you know that you can get back up, it becomes a habit, right? You just keep doing it. And I tell people in basketball, you're great if you make half of your shots, right? <laughs> you're one of the best. So keep shooting because the next one might go in. You got to think the next one's going to go in. So that was something that my coaches helped to instill in me and that I've tried to pass along to others. 
Corey, I would love to get your thoughts on youth sports before yeah. we go on. One of the things you said is you played basketball, and I know you continued with it. But before we get to that, I've been thinking about the fact that my girls love volleyball. One of them was able to make it to club volleyball. One of them wasn't able to. But I think about the amount of investment some kids have, whether it's in volleyball or basketball. By the time they are 10, 12, we're not talking about college-level athletes. And I reflect on the fact that while I'm sure there are people without that investment who are supremely gifted, they can compete. We're missing. It puts a lot of other kids at a disadvantage and would love to know some of your thoughts about that. It's one of the areas where underinvestment and the income inequality that we have is reaching down to children and taking away some of the best. I just talked about how all of these growth opportunities that I had, I might not have had those had there not been coaches in my town and some of these things available that were not club sports. So my kids are around the same ages as yours, Mahan, and I see how this divide is happening on income lines. And it makes me think that we've got some of our priorities wrong in thinking about monetizing youth sports. Youth sports can be one of the ways where we're really investing in our young people. There's so many life lessons to be gained from sports. And if we really want to be competitive on a national, international stage, we can't just be investing in the kids who have money, but we have to invest in all of the kids. So on a number of levels, it's disappointing what I'm seeing in sports as a parent. And as someone who spent a long time in a previous career working in youth sports. One of the things that I'm hoping we would be able to think about and change is that the other thing this has done is that it has divided kids among those socioeconomic lines that there are already those divisions anyway, along neighborhoods and schools. Sports, to a certain extent, was bringing more kids together from across different socioeconomic backgrounds. Now, even with respect to that, there are divisions that I see. But you continued in basketball, you studied at Tufts. What then got you to go to Finland to play basketball? And what was that experience like, Ari? I was really fortunate. Someone on my team, his father was the president of a club team in Finland. And that was my first job out of college, to be <laughs> a pro basketball player living just outside of Helsinki. And what an experience that was. I fulfill a dream and play basketball for a living. It really helped me grow up. I spent a year on my own in a foreign country where I, they, I didn't speak the language. I didn't have any other connections. And it, it forced me to toughen up a little bit. And I definitely had some hard experiences during that time. Again, it's one of these moments where I think I was tested a little bit, and being able to draw on some of these experiences where I knew that giving up was not the answer because there was a point at which I wanted to quit because it was going, I thought, so badly. And it ended up being one of the best experiences of my life. So what was that, Kari? What were some of the breaking points when you were in Finland? I was dealing with some nagging injuries. I was lonely. What I didn't realize is that in December in Finland, it's very close to the Arctic Circle. I was getting light and 
9.30 in the morning and dark at 3.30 in the afternoon, and I developed seasonal affective disorder, which I didn't even know had a name. <laughs> Nobody diagnosed me, but I figured it out after the fact. I realized that I needed to stop feeling sorry for myself and being inside, get out, and be more active. My team helped me do that, connect me to opportunities to get involved in the community. I got involved doing a little bit of teaching and coaching, and those became things that I knew that I wanted to pursue later. And I developed some other strategies for dealing with the language barrier. Not rocket science, really, just coming up with another approach. And it ended up making all the difference. Now, did you aspire to play in the Finnish leagues and then make it to the NBA? Or was Finland the end point for you? <laughs> I knew that the NBA was probably not going to come calling for me. I hope that I could have a longer European career or some career playing overseas. But that I got one year was, I'll take <laughs> <laughs> As you said, it's a unique experience to live in a different country. Now, Finland is a very homogeneous society. Yeah. How was fitting in Finland? What was that experience like for you? They're quiet people, which kind of fit sort of my New England upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> Folks might say cold. <laughs> the weather also resembled some of the worst of New England weather. <laughs> But there were a lot of things that I really came to appreciate about Finland. They were very patriotic people. They believed in service, which was something that every Finnish citizen, even though they haven't had a war since I think been involved in any military issues since World War II when they were invaded by the Soviets. But everyone goes through national service. And I think that engendered a communal aspect that I don't see here in the U.S. And I think part of that is enabled by their homogeneity, right? They all feel like they're in for one another because it could be their cousin or their nephew or whoever. And I think we don't have as much of that today. But I was really impressed with the educational system. And they were great people. They were great to me. A lot of that experience has come to shape some of my worldview. So as that worldview was shaped, you came back to the States and you got your master's. Just curious, though, what sparked your interest in education and social justice work, which you've pretty much spent your entire career in? Currently? Yeah. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do when I came home. And I was testing the waters in a few areas and one of those was coaching and i found that i really loved coaching i did a little bit of coaching at the college level but, and then i coached basketball at the high school level and really loved working with those young men and i thought that i had found my calling i thought <laughs> that i would be a high school history teacher and a basketball coach it was really working with some of our players off of the court that helped me see the importance of education or helped me see myself being involved in education. I saw that some of our players who were trying to qualify to get a minimum score on the SAT to qualify to play college basketball, at that time you needed a combined verbal and math on the SAT of 700. And we had 
several players who, despite having good grades, could not break that score. And it just didn't make sense to me that these really hardworking, intelligent young men who could memorize the other team's plays that we were going to play next Tuesday were at about a fifth or sixth grade reading level in some cases. And those two things just didn't align for me. And it just was, I thought, unacceptable that we have people who are so willing to learn and their education system was failing. I thought that I could make a difference there. And so that inspired me to go to graduate school and got me on the path that I've been on for the last 25 years. Now, that's a challenge, Kari, that we've had for as long as I can remember. And a lot of people have talked about it, but not much has been done about it. Why do you think that is where in the school system, we still have students, in many instances, athletes, as you said, very intelligent, very capable, who are able to go on, even graduate, without being able to have some of the fundamentals of reading, writing, or math taken care of? These are big systemic issues here, Mahmoud, that I think it goes back to our priorities as a country. And we don't really have the investment in public education or even some basic services to create a level playing that will enable young, let's be clear, it's black and brown young people who are missing the most in terms of equal opportunities. Our education system is based upon taxes for our home values that determine what school systems get. And we have young people who are starting out behind. And this crosses all of the systems that touch our young people from health to housing, to criminal justice, to education. It's just a significant lack of investment in our communities until we start to see these as being our universal <laughs> problems it's going to be hard to deal with them at a system-wide level. We don't talk about these things really. Even when you look at our election cycles, these aren't the top topics in our election cycle. And I just don't think that we have a collective investment as a nation to address these problems. So we do have a very committed nonprofit sector. We have very committed leaders in working in the public sector. But we're treating the symptoms in a lot of cases and not the causes. It is interesting to me, as you were saying, we don't see it as a collective problem in that in many instances, we even don't view it at the region, state, or county level. We look at the school that our kids go to. How is that school performing? Rather than caring more about the broader community and then the impact that this gap in education has. So how did you end up then becoming involved at what was then Capital Partners for Education? When I was finishing my master's program, was looking for opportunities to serve in the nonprofit sector. I was looking for mentoring organizations and came across Capital Partners for Education, who was going through a leadership transition and 
I was actually really more interested in a role of working with young people and not in a leadership role. The organization was so small that they had one position, and that was for interim executive director. And I agreed to accept an offer to be an interim executive director for four weeks, thinking that I would get a little bit of experience and then move on and do something else. After four weeks, they renewed me for another four weeks. And that happened four times until finally I was named the permanent executive director at the beginning of 2002. So this was happening beginning in September 2001. I was the only employee there for a time and gradually grew the organization. We're now 22 years later and we're serving 10 times as many young adults and we have 31 employees and more than 500 volunteers and things have really taken off in recent years. But it's been a gradual process over many years and an incredible journey for me that has just been the experience of a lifetime. It has been an incredible journey and your incredible leadership growing the organization, Kari, and growing its impact. One of the things I love about organizations like the one you lead at what was called Capital Partners, now we'll get to the rebranding, is the fact that growth is not just return to shareholders, it's return to people's lives and return to the community, and you've been able to do that. So if you were to reflect back and give advice to other whether young entrepreneurs, executive directors, and leaders wanting to grow their organization. What are the key factors, in addition to your smarts and good looks, what are the key (laughs) factors that contributed to this very significant growth and impact? It's funny, Mahat, I didn't have the aspiration when I started to grow. And if I had, I would have done things different meaning I would have designed a more scalable model. So that would be my advice. If your goal is greater scale, you need to build with that in mind. We built an organization that was meant to be a small community-based organization that was getting significant impact for a small number of young people. And we decided maybe in my eighth, ninth year, And it was really I who came to this conclusion. But a lot of our supporters were saying, this is an amazing organization. Its only problem is that it's too small. And you're working in an area where there's vast inequality. You should be more of a solution. And that began to really resonate with me. We had still grown, I told you, 10x and all of that. But we would be multiples larger had we really built the organization for scale. So if you really want to scale, think about your revenue model and think about how you developed all of your evaluation systems to be able to demonstrate your impact and so that you can prepare to do it at scale. That's one of the interesting things, Kari. Over the years, I've been very involved in many entrepreneurial startups and angel capital and venture capital. And when 
companies look to raise funding for profit ventures, they always have to have the hockey stick of their growth and impact. And I'm always curious why a lot of nonprofits don't have that same mindset, because if it is great work, then scale should be a part of that to impact more lives and more people rather than being happy at a small level. So I think a lot of the ambition goes to the for-profit entrepreneurial startups. Some of them make it, many of them don't. While the nonprofits in many instances are happy on incremental changes from year to year. Yeah, I think that's very true, Mahan. That was true for me. I came with a background in social sciences and it wasn't until a few years later that I began taking MBA courses and things that uh, sharpened my skills in that way. But I began with a community view and that view has just broadened over time. I think that's very common of the people who were drawn to the social sector, which is healthy, right? I think that these are the people who are most interested in serving. Maybe the question we should be asking is not how can we build larger nonprofits, but how can we get out of the business where we're relying on nonprofits to do things that our society should just have built in? (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing that I would like to see us get to. You want to develop a system where there isn't a lot of breakage because in many instances, the nonprofits are trying to fix a breakage, which is not as effective and costs a lot more money than if we avoided that breakage in the first place. That's right. Exactly right. Now, throughout the years, you've also tested different things. Some have worked, some haven't worked in scaling. You tested an e-mentoring software platform. And it sounds like that didn't work out. How come? Because the concept of it makes great sense to me. Following on the conversation we just had, scaling the impact, not just being happy to reach and touch a few or even hundreds of people. We missed on, I think, one or two important aspects of our analysis. And it ended up being a mistake that it took years to grow out. (laughs) and was another learning opportunity for me as a leader to first undo the mistake, figure out how can we adjust and how do we communicate those adjustments to all the various stakeholders, community, and how can we get back to where we want to be? That process took time, and those were some important lessons. But again, in leadership, and I say this to our team, we're all going to make mistakes. <laughs> and I think my board understands that. They've made mistakes in, in their businesses and in their lives. And it's what you do after that is what matters. I totally agree with that, Kari. And I think, if anything, we need to speed up the pace of making some of those mistakes. Yeah. And when I talk about it, I categorize it in two different types of mistakes. Some are experimental mistakes, meaning you have a hypothesis that something's going to work, you go for it, and that hypothesis proves incorrect. It doesn't work. We need to scale those mistakes or have many more of those 
mistakes, successful organizations do that. Some are mistakes of execution where things aren't done well. We need to minimize those types of mistakes. Sure. So I'm glad to hear that your board has been supportive of you experimenting and seeing what can help the organization scale. Some work, some don't, and those are lessons that are learned. Would love to know as we're talking about this, what is it that Capital Partners does for these students? What are the services that are provided? Yeah, and this would be a good time to note too that we, and you alluded to this, we rebranded in July after 29 years as Capital Partners for Education, rebranded to Spark the Journey. So that's our new name, which we love. We have always been an organization that is committed to black and brown young people in the DMV. And we've supported them by mentoring and with some educational support so that they can have economic mobility in their lives as adults. In our early years, we did that through scholarships to enable our students to go to private high schools and provide mentoring. The mentoring aspect was something that we have taken to much greater scale. We found that scholarships was a harder thing to scale. We began focusing more on students who attend public and charter schools and going to college and now in workforce programs. The thing that we do best, Mahan, is that we pair our students with mentors, adults who care about them. We surround them with a support system that helps them persist in school and at important transition points that are really vital for success. So think about the transition from eighth grade to the ninth grade, the transition from the 12th grade into what am I going to do next? If I'm going to college, you know, and I'm the first person in my family to go to college, I need some extra support to be able to navigate that process. There's some technical things. There are some just coaching things that young people need, encouragement and helping them persist. We do that with young adults at a variety of transition points, but helping them persist and prepare for economic mobility. That's the thing that we do best. And we're really proud of the success of our students over the years. They've graduated about three times the rate from college as many of their peers around the country. And we have many who come back and become mentors and donors, board members, and people starting their own nonprofits, contributing in many ways. And we just are trying to get more and more young people expand our reach today. Kari, I would love to understand it better and also a couple of concerns that I've typically heard from people. One, understanding it better, is it that the same individual mentors a student through this journey, a young person through this journey? Are there different people that mentor them? How does that process work? It can be either, Mahani. I think the typical experience for students who are in one of our programs is a multi-year experience, which most of our programs historically have been about a four-year time period where the young person is enrolled. And in those cases, you're usually getting more than one mentor. So we ask our volunteers to make a one-year commitment 
if they're successful, if the match is successful, many of those end up doing another year. And we've had many mentoring relationships that have lasted beyond the official time in the program, and they're 15 years later are almost like extended family members. It's great that a program like this can add value to the lives of the students that get involved with it. But there is selection bias in that the students that raise their hands or are willing to participate are already the ones who will be more likely to make it through the different hurdles. And the ones that need it the most are the ones that are not going to volunteer and are not going to participate in the program. How do you address that? Yeah, I think that's an important question, Mahan, and one that we have thought a lot about over the years. I would say in our early years that we were identifying exactly those people that you mentioned. They were the high flyers, the ones who raise their hands or the ones who are picked first because they stand out. And it's important to be able to provide resources and extra support for those because we need high achievers and they end up often being the only black or brown person in their classes as they go on in many of the rooms that they go into. So we were proud to do that. We still do some of that. But most of what we do now is looking to identify those who would not otherwise get any sort of extra support. We focus on a group that we call the academic middle. Some people call them the forgotten middle. GPA-wise, they're at the peak of the bell curve. And in our lower-income communities, there aren't a lot of resources for these young people. Their counselors are generally, teachers are focused on those people who raise their hands or those people who need remedial support, behaviors. And if my players 25 years ago are quiet, polite, not causing a stir, you can fly by under the radar in a public school system. And our society misses the contributions of those folks. We need to do more to get them involved. So that's where we really see our focus being. And let me tell you, Mahan, that's the bulk of black and brown youth in the Washington, D.C. area. Those are the ones who need more support. I love hearing that, Kari, because it's something that is needed. I've been familiar with a couple of nonprofits that in part because of the funding and because of the measures associated with the funding have played those games where the funders look for 100% of the people, for example, to make it on to college. So if the funders look for that, you're going to look for the students. Yes, they can benefit from some of the guidance and support, but the ones who are most likely to then go on to college because that's what the funders are looking at. I'm a big advocate for measures by all means, believe me. Measures that matter, and sometimes I found with nonprofits that are meant to help the community, they get in a cycle in part because of the funders. That's right. Their measures are real, but they know how to massage the front end to make sure they meet the measures at the back end. I think, Mahan, you're touching on one of the shortcomings of the nonprofit sector is our reliance on funders and their priorities. And I always say, no money, no mission. So I understand 
why take that approach? I don't begrudge them necessarily for focusing on those. I think those are worthy people. Again, I think we should be looking at our system and saying, is this the best that we can do <laughs> as a society? Does this really align with what we say that our values are? In a lot of cases, it seems like the nonprofit sort of built in as a component of our broken sort of capitalist structure today, where more value going to, you talked about shareholder value, right? If that is the main goal of our society, when it comes to business, at least, the nonprofit sector is going to feel some of that as well. I like the way you express it, Kari. And it brings to mind one of my favorite proverbs. It's a proverb slash story of African origin about kids falling in a stream and two people saving the kids at the bottom of the stream. Then all of a sudden, one of them starts leaving. The other one says, why the heck are you leaving? Says go upstream, find out who is pushing these kids in the stream. So yes, it's outstanding to save the kids downstream, to help them. And it's necessary for us to do that. However, we cannot keep from asking, what is it upstream that is getting these kids or throwing them into the stream in the first place? So I appreciate you thinking about that. Are there things that the listeners of the podcast, whether people in business or in government or nonprofit can do more upstream, downstream support organizations like yours, but what needs to happen upstream to reduce the number of kids that need to be saved? Mahan, you're asking the right question here. I think this is a question that isn't posed to folks like me enough, or maybe it's posed to our leaders generally enough. And I think of the three groups that you talked about, it's the business community. The government will do what the business community sets as the priorities. And the nonprofit community will make do with whatever resources that we have. We live in an element of scarcity driven by the whims of business who are the donors for the most part. We mentioned the shareholders, and I would love for the business community to think more broadly about their responsibilities and leadership position when it comes to the communities that they're in, and thinking about the whole of the communities and not just the shareholder. So that would be where I think the starting That's a great starting point. It is a hard one on a lot of different levels, Kari. We celebrate the funds contributed. We don't celebrate the investment that is made ahead of time or whatever it has done ahead of time that has reduced the need for funds to be contributed. It's a little bit like talking about the many pandemics that people say had been prevented in the past, no one celebrates the fact that whether it was Ebola or whatever else, that it was prevented from spreading after COVID spreads or whatever else, everyone's like, oh my God, how do we deal with pandemics? So it is an important conversation for us to have, but I appreciate your understanding and awareness of the need to both address 
the here and now, which is really important for us to do, and to continually have conversations in the community with the businesses about that upstream element of it. Now, one of the great honors of life, Kari, is to be recognized for the great work that one has done by others. You've gotten a lot of recognition, including receiving John Thompson Legacy of a Dream Award. What is that award that you received in 2022? This was one of the greatest honors that I've received in my career, in part because of the specific meaning of the people for whom the award was made. So John Thompson Jr., hopefully most people know, was the legendary basketball coach at Georgetown for about 25 years throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the university named the award after him to honor one person in the community who is doing a lot locally to give back leading a nonprofit organization. So I got that honor in 2022. Uh, It was special to me because I grew up really admiring John Thompson. Also, the honor was bestowed upon me on Martin Luther King's birthday. It was called The Legacy of a Dream, and the presentation was always on Martin Luther King Day. Two of my heroes' connection was just a great highlight for me. I was really grateful to Georgetown for it. It is recognizing another hero in our community, and that's you, Curry. So I'm really happy that you received that recognition for the silent work you've done over the years in the community. Talk a lot about leadership, and there are a lot of what I call selfie leaders, Curry, people who are at the center of every image. And now with selfies, that's pretty easy to do, but the mindset, the communication, everything is about them. So it's great to see leaders that make a difference in the community who are not selfie leaders. They're the ones that deserve to be recognized. I'm one of those leaders who I'm not a self-promoter by nature. So I think as a result, even throughout 20 years of leadership, there are many people who I meet say, how come I never heard of work that you're doing before? <laughs> I'm trying to change that now, as I've mentioned, that we're more ambitious. I think my role is expanding in that way, which is terrific. And it is a hard balance, Kari. I do admit the fact that there has to be an element where you have to be a face to promote the cause, to bring people to it, make a difference, and at the same time, not step over the line and make it all about you. (laughs) No, it's certainly not about me. It's about important people in our community who aren't getting the resources and support that they deserve, and we're trying to do something about that. And it just so happens that I get a lot of the attention for it, but we deploy hundreds of volunteers every year and we've got an amazing team who's doing the work every day. I'm the cheerleader for everyone. <laughs> As this cheerleader, you've been doing this for almost 30 years now, or Capital Partners was right. doing it for almost 30 years. Why after... 29 years, decide to rebrand, as you mentioned earlier, and change the name? Listen, three decades is a long time, right? (laughs) (laughs) So we evolved a lot. I think our program model, I could name probably five distinct, I call pivot points, where we made adaptations to our model. We're a different organization than we are, and we didn't think that our name really reflected who we 
are today and who we want to be in the future. There was some confusion also and people thinking that we were in private equity or something <laughs> financial services with the capital partners. You have partners. more capital than you know what to do with. And so we got plenty of questions about that. So it was time. We just launched a new strategic plan where we're doing more work, mentoring young people who are preparing for the workforce and thought it was an opportune time to also finally rebrand. So we're excited about being sparked the journey and to us, that means our organization can ignite future opportunities, but our young people really chart their own pathways to economic mobility. We just want to give them that support and guidance so that they can find their path. I love that you serve as an igniter and as a catalyst. That's right. They are the ones that are on the journey and they're the ones that make it happen for themselves. You support that. I love the way you think about it. And I'm sure the rebranding becomes supportive of the strategic plan that you have, which is an important piece of this. Now you go through all of this and then you decide to take a four month sabbatical <laughs> career. <laughs> yeah, it was time, Bob. It was time. You know, I had, to, I had 21 years with no more than three weeks off at any given time. My kids were born. And the pandemic really, quite frankly, took its toll on me. I was ready. I needed a break. I'm grateful that my board was really supportive of me and offered the sabbatical. Boy, was it an amazing experience. It was a refresher that I needed. It gave me perspective. It gave me the opportunity to just recharge. I spent time visiting with family and friends and a lot of rest and relaxation on my own at home and came back more motivated than ever with a real appreciation for the experience, the opportunity. And I've become a bit of an advocate proselytizing for sabbaticals. I think that too many of my peers in the nonprofit sector are burning out and don't feel that we have the license to raise our hands to take that time. And we're building in a sabbatical policy at Spark the Journey, something I believe in. It was great for me, and I hope others can get the opportunity to do it as well. I'm happy to hear that, Kari. I work with a lot of senior executives in business and some in nonprofit. And I don't think I have seen this level of pressure emotional yeah. health issues, yeah. and anxiety yeah. in my career, yeah. most especially for many of the nonprofit executives of color. Yeah. It's been a rough yeah. couple of years, laid on top of what had been a typically hard role anyway. So good for you for seeking it, good for your board for supporting it. And I have no doubt your thinking is more fresh and energized. So you have an experienced person with the energy and excitement of a new person uh, yeah. leading Spark the Journey, rather than either a burned out person or a new person without any understanding and experience. Right. And it also gave other leaders on my team opportunities to grow. Also, it's a healthy business practice, not just for the nonprofit sector, but I would say Everywhere, if your chief executive steps aside, the show has to go on. 
people are going to figure out how to make things work. And in our case, it led to some better practices. And so when I returned, it was not about, okay, what things that you were doing can I pick back up? It's okay, you've got it. I have more time now to focus on higher order things that are going to move the needle farther and faster for the young people that we support. So, Kari, you're back, energized, new strategic plan. If we talk with each other five years from now, and yeah. we're going to see each other before then, and yeah, right. but if we talk five years from now, and you have really been able to scale the impact further and have achieved the strategic plan and done more with Spark the Journey, what will be different? What will Spark the Journey be like five years from now? Mahat, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> but I can tell you that we are doing some things in working with partners that I think can lead to some real breakthroughs and growth for us. I co-founded a collaborative called the Talent for Tomorrow Alliance. It's a group of five nonprofit organizations who are doing either college success or workforce development work uh, with a similar population of young adults. And we're collaborating, pooling our resources to get better outcomes and be more efficient in doing it. I think we can grow a lot faster that way. I'm also working on partnerships with local governments and businesses. So what I would like to see five years from now is growth in multiples of the reach that we have today, being able to reach much larger share of the young adults in our community. And if we're successful with that, we have the ear of leaders in the community. I think we also need to be thinking about how we can change some of the practices that affect our young people, practices in K-12, practices in higher ed, practices in the way we train our young people for entry level to the workforce and giving the business community more opportunities to make some adaptations as well. I appreciate your leadership toward that. These are complex problems and they don't have easy answers and easy solutions, but it is important for all of us to be at the table engaged, understanding that it is up to all of us to solve the issues. It is not acceptable to let it go on as is. Right. We can and we will have the opportunities to do that. And I look forward to your leadership as you're doing that. Now, on the other hand, you're also a proud father of two kids. That's right. You've been married to your wife for 18 or so years now. As a father of two kids, what are your aspirations for their education, their growth, and the future that they will inherit from you, Kari? That's a great question, Mahan. I am so, so fortunate to have two amazing kids. They're 14 and 12. They attend D.C. public schools. They have their whole lives so far. And I want them to have all of the opportunities that I had more. I think they already have more exposure to things that I didn't, maybe for better or worse, with the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and to really chart 
their own pathways, much like I said for the young people in Spark the Journey. I think what was great about my parents' approach to education was that they left it to me to find what inspired me. And I think when my kids find that inspiration, they will latch on to something and really pour themselves into it much in the way that I did. But it's not for me to decide what those things are, right? <laughs> so I want to provide a well-rounded education to them, and I think we're off to a good start. I have no doubt they have a great role model in you, Corey. So oh, that's thanks. outstanding to hear. I do have to say also, as an aside on the education front of it, for the podcast, I'm interviewing some leading thinkers on artificial intelligence and going impact. And one of the interesting things is sometimes people are scared about artificial intelligence taking people's jobs. It will displace some jobs. But the more concerning factor that many of the AI experts that I talk to talk about is that it is going to magnify the differences even more. It's not that it's necessarily going to take away the yeah. jobs. However, the people who are capable and have access will be able to do even more yeah. It's going to yeah. scale those differences. That's pretty consistent with the way technology has changed things over the past generation. Was it a generation or two ago where there was a manufacturing sector and that provided stability for many families? And now that, that that's gone, I think technology is a big part of that. I can see that trend continuing. I guess the question is, okay, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> Exactly. And that's why we need to have the right people at the table talking about it, because we can do things about it yeah. upstream. Now, on the fun side of it, Kari, you've that's had right. a lot of unique experiences in life, but there is one that I think most people would be jealous when they hear of, and that's you got a chance to play basketball with President Obama <laughs> at Camp David, yeah. what was that experience like, Harry? Oh, that was uh, in my top five experiences in life after, you know, births and weddings and those things. I was uh, a, a big uh, Barack Obama fan. And when I found out that we had biographical things in common, and then when I found out that he was a basketball player playing in a game that some of my friends were playing, that was uh, on the bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> Being able to play that day was was just really an experience of a lifetime. Never forget it, and uh, something to tell the grandkids about. You have to dish the details. <laughs> <laughs> I think we won the games for the day. My team, the president was on the other team. The president was very effective in trash talking, and he got all the calls <laughs> his way. No one <laughs> argued the calls against him. <laughs> and uh, at the end of it, we went back to D.C. and he got on a helicopter and solved some of the world's problems. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing, amazing day, one that I'll never forget. I bet. It's even fun hearing about it, let alone experiencing it and recounting it, Kari. Now, Kari, you have been an outstanding leader of 
your organization, Spark the Journey, have been recognized with awards, including John Thompson's Legacy of a Dream Award. You're still a young man. I'm sure you're going to get many more awards and do many more great things, which is more important than the awards that you get for the great things that you've done. When you reflect on leadership, how do you work on improving your leadership? And are there leadership resources you typically count on and refer to others? Those are important questions. And I've been really fortunate to have people who've invested in me. So I've been able to participate and I could probably name more than 10 leadership programs that I've participated in. Leadership Washington, one that I know that we share, but many others over the years. And those have been intentional investments, both on my part, but also from my board. So that, I think, is important, finding those resources and boards and leaders need to make sure that their leadership teams are getting those trainings, those opportunities. You not only learn a lot from the instructors in those situations, but from your peers. Other part is surrounding myself with an unofficial advisory group of people are always there for me to bounce questions off of to learn from observing what others, people who I look up to do, and then to remain curious and to be a student. One of the, I think, most important values that I picked up throughout my education was the importance of being a lifelong learner. And that's something I want to instill in everyone, my own children, to all of the young people that that we reach. That's one of the greatest gifts of education, being a lifelong learner. That means that we as leaders can research and learn and think about where do we need to grow? What is AI going to do, not this year, but in three years? How can I be thinking about that? And leaders always need to be asking those questions. And that's something that I devote time to every day. I totally agree with you that it is important for us to have that learning mindset and growth mindset, even more so as the pace of change picks up and becomes even faster. At a conversation a couple of years back with Jim Dyke, I call him Mr. Chairman, because he was chairman of a lot of organizations that I was involved with, and he had been Secretary of Education in Virginia. Jim talked about his passion for education, and the worst thing you could do during the period of slavery was to try to educate a slave, because the slave owners felt education was the most threatening thing that you could give to another human being. So we have that opportunity now. It is up to all of us to educate and do exactly what you said, Kari. Address the issues as we have them right now, those people in the stream, and together move on up in the stream and make sure fewer people fall into that stream. I really appreciate you, Kari Brown, your leadership, and you taking the time to share some of your background, upbringing, and leadership lessons with the Partnering Leadership Community. Thank you so much, Kari. Um, it's, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation today. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app 
and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.